0: To join SelfWealth now, use the link in your podcast player or head to selfwealth.com.au and use the coupon code RASK during sign-up. This podcast is sponsored by RASK Invest, Owen's complete guide to money and investing. Visit the RASK Finance website to learn more and join today. Hello, and thanks for tuning in to the Australian Investors Podcast, a series exploring the investment philosophies and journeys of some of Australia's leading investors and financial thinkers. I'm Owen Raskovich, founder of the Rask Group. For show notes and other episodes in this series, as well as free educational resources, please visit www.raskfinance.com. Before we go on, it's important to remember the Australian Investors Podcast is provided for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon to make an investment, financial or taxation decision. The information included in this podcast does not take into account your needs, goals or objectives and guests appearing on the show may have a financial interest in some of the products mentioned. Please read all the important disclosure documents and refer to the RAS Group's Financial Services Guide on the RAS Finance website. My guest for this episode of the Australian Investors Podcast is a very special one. Hamish Douglas is the co founder and chief investment officer for Magellan Financial Group, one of Australia's most successful funds management businesses. In addition to growing Magellan into a multi billion dollar business, Hamish has held positions on the Foreign Investment Review Board, the Financial Literacy Board, the Takeovers Panel, and on the board of the Victor Chang Cardiac Research Institute. In this conversation, we get into the weeds of what Hamish and his team look for in global opportunities, how they value businesses, and what the future holds for investors and society more broadly. While all of that makes for a very entertaining conversation, I think you'll thoroughly enjoy hearing about Hamish's journey before Magellan, why he moved into funds management, and some of the early learnings. As usual, that's where we start our conversation. So why don't we go back to the beginning? Tell us about you, a younger Hamish, where you grew up, uh, if there was any, any one in particular or a book or some type of mentor that you had that sort of set you on this journey towards investing? Yeah, well, I was always
1: interested in, in money, and I don't want to say that badly. I was very mm-hmm. interested in the mathematics of, uh, of money. I really, uh, really like math. I went to uh, University of New South Wales. Mm-hmm. I started out studying combined law degree, finance and law. Um, the law didn't have a lot of interest in me, so I dropped the law and took up a double major in finance and, and accounting, mm-hmm. um, and really was keen to get out of the sort of academic world as, as quickly as I, as I could. And I actually started at a company called Schroder's Australia, a- and I started really on the M&A side. I really wanted to be a banker, an okay. m and banker, you know, grew up in the 1980s. Mm. Uh, I guess we all watched Wall Street and those, yep. they, they, those, uh, those type of things. So I wanted to get in the M&A uh, game. And on the day I arrived at Schroder's Australia, I was incredibly fortunate Uh, that on the same day I joined, a gentleman called Chris Mackay joined Schroder's Australia. And Chris is a bit older than I am. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, the chief executive of Schroder's, a man called Peter Mason, actually had a lunch for us in the boardroom, and I was this bright-eyed graduate. And then Chris and I went and sat next to each other for the Mm. next sort of four and a half years uh, at Schroder's. And on that day I joined, he put 20 years of Berkshire Hathaway annual reports on my desk and said... (laughs) Um, I guess you should read these. And I sat down and I actually read them all and I was absolutely fascinated with the whole Buffett philosophy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I went searching out for sort of the Buffett influences, what had, uh, what had uh, influenced Warren and Charlie Munger. And, and, of course, you come to Benjamin Graham, security mm-hmm. analysis. Uh, you come to Phil Fisher. Uh, both very very important in, in 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 different ways. So, I really was influenced really by Chris to start with, but then I was very very influenced by the whole Buffer Munger, Graham Fisher uh, uh, view of the world. So even though I didn't know any of those gentlemen, I've met some of them mm-hmm. sub- subsequently. Obviously not Ben Graham and Phil Fisher because they're no longer around. Um, but I was hugely influenced by the eminent dead Hmm. or by people I had never met uh, before and I have a lot to thank Chris for for that very early influence literally on the first day I started working uh, and then Chris and I of course went to many Berkshire Hathaway annual general meetings together and and I met Brett Cairns who's now our chief executive and he used to come to the Berkshire Hathaway uh, uh, meetings as well. Do you still get to them? Yeah, we, we, we do. Brett was there this year. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I, I went a few years ago. Um, I, I try and get there, but you know, you get them, you get the podcasts, and you get the live uh, stream. The, the live stream pretty pretty instantaneously. But it, but sometimes they remind you about uh, about things. They were more interesting when the meetings were much smaller. To be
0: mm. uh, to be honest,
1: and I will often go back and I'll be at the gym and I will go and say, let's listen to the nineteen ninety eight or the nineteen ninety six. Um, annual general meeting and I, I do that quite a lot and I re listen to to all the old
0: sort of meetings and go back and read uh, writings most of them I'm pretty familiar with is that something that you do today do you indoctrinate some of the analysts with the 50-year the uh, I suppose anniversary textbooks the Buffett and Munger you know he- textbook to investing here you go take the the annual letters and go away and read that in your own time or is that something that you do with your analysts um, well, we're, we've got a lot of
1: the Buffett stuff uh, uh, around and security analysts, so be, people know the background and, and philosophy. But we've developed our own investment mm. philosophy. So while we're influenced, we do things that are quite different to what uh, Warren For and sure. Charlie are doing uh, at the uh, at the moment, and we're in quite a different gear to to the gears uh, therein. You know, I write a lot about our investment philosophy over uh, over time. I'm actually just writing another piece that's going to come up in our annual. Uh, uh, letter as well. I don't force our analysts to to read what i write, but um, there's a lot of other things that are sitting around Magellan that aren't just old Berkshire Hathaway annual reports. Mm-hmm.
0: So, okay, we'll get to your investment process and philosophy in a moment, but perhaps you could take us through that next step in your career. Where did you go from Schroders?
1: Yeah, well, Chris and I actually left Schroeders in uh, end of 1994, actually, okay. and i had started left in 19 19- We left together. So I joined on the same day with Chris, <laughs> and we were hired by a company called Potter Warburg that became UBS. Chris went on to become the chairman and chief executive of UBS right. in Australia and New Zealand, and I was very, very fortunate that I got to meet a man called Tony Burgess. Uh, Tony Burgess is a brilliant person. He was head of the sort of investment banking side of Potter Warburg based in... Uh, uh, Melbourne and I actually moved with my wife just after we got married from Sydney to Melbourne hmm. and I worked with, with with Tony and then Tony and I and another gentleman called Jeff Cohen we actually left um, end of 1995 we left Potter Warburg um, and we joined a company that was 40% owned by Rothschild called Eel and C. Bailey and in the end that business I became a partner of that business at a fairly young age and we ended up uh, selling that business, we bought Rothschild out, and then we sold ELC Bayou. Um, uh, a bunch of partners there. It was led by a gentleman called Clive Smith, who's a wonderful uh, person. It was bought by Deutsche Bank, okay. and and in the end, I joined Deutsche Bank. I think it was in 1997, and I left Deutsche Bank in 2006. So I was in ending up the co-head of global banking, mm. which is their investment banking. Uh, uh, business here, so I had a uh, career of 16 years in investment banking, and and had a wonderful time. Met some incredibly smart people. Mm. did a did a lot of advisory work for some of the world's largest uh, uh, companies at, at a very young age. And then Chris and I, when we left investment banking, I think had done eight of the top 10 deals, largest deals that had ever been done in Australia between us. So oh, wow. we were we were very very Uh, fortunate. Um, But investing was in our blood at at the end of the day. And we, we, Chris had already stepped down and had a small investment company called New Privateer. Uh, And I said to Chris in early 2006, why don't we set up a funds management business? And he said, it was just after my father died, actually. And he said, it's a great idea. I happen to have already left (laughs) UBS. uh, But if you... Uh, manage to get your act together and leave Deutsche Bank I'd love to do that and and that was kind of uh, uh, the genesis.
0: Why, why did you want to move into funds management? Well Chris and I used to had been for
1: you know 16 years debating investments we'd been doing a lot of personal investing we'd been going to Berkshire Hathaway he had already uh, uh, stepped down uh, and we
0: just had a passion hmm. in, the, in the space um, so we thought we'd give it a go. Hmm. And so how did you seed the business? Was it just the two of you? What was Magellan like in the the formative days? Well, we we did something pretty unique when we set
1: the business up. Uh, Chris and I wanted to have something set up for scale, and we decided to do it as a listed company. And what we did is Malcolm Turnbull had a company called Pengana Hedge Funds, and Chris already had a separate listed company called New Privateer. And effectively, we recapitalized this company called Pengana Hedge Funds. We took over the structure. It had $30 million of cash in it, and we raised another $70 million uh, of cash. And people like uh, James Packer and Naomi Milgram uh, came on board as cornerstone investors, of course, with Chris and myself and, and New Privateer. And uh, we kind of passed around the hat, and mm-hmm. we raised $100 million to set the uh, to set the business up in 2006. And we raised a closed in fund, which was called the Magellan Flagship Fund, a mm. listed investment company. It's now called MFF Capital Investments, and Chris runs that to today. It's done terrifically uh, well, but that was our first funds under management, 370 million, and we raised 100 million to set the firm up. So, in a period of six weeks in sort of the third quarter of 2006, we had four people in a serviced office, and we went out and passed a hat around and raised. Sure. $500 million dollars or just south of $500 million. Uh, uh, dollars. We have to remember that was 2006. Mm. Uh, and everyone thought we were going to set up another investment bank. And, and Chris and I were going, we're, we're not. We're telling people straight that that we're not setting up an f- investment bank <laughs> where we want to set up a
0: funds management uh, uh, business. And they were obviously receptive of that because they've handed over a few hundred million dollars.
1: Yeah, well, um, look, we, we knew how to raise money. We came out of that and we, sure. we, had, we had some reputations mm. um, uh, for the careers we, we'd had and we knew a lot of people. And um, uh, But we were, we were very fortunate. And mm. we were fortunate the timing uh, of when we did it. It may be fortunate or lucky.
0: <laughs> not long before the GFC. Well,
1: not long before. You know, when we set up the Global Fund, we launched that on the 1st of July 2007 and markets last peaked in October two thousand. And seven. Of course, they mm. really started their correction in September two thousand and eight. But it wasn't that long before the peak of the market when we really set the uh, the business up.
0: Mm. So, describe the the depth of the GFC for you and the business more broadly. And reflecting back on it now, some of the lessons learned, perhaps, were there any that you can draw on now?
1: Yeah, I think it really came out the importance of downside protection mm. uh, at, at, at the end of the day and what that creates for you in the opportunity. We, we, we beat the markets by 20 percentage points in those, uh, in those those in those days, and we had a philosophy around capital preservation, and we had done some certain things in the strategy leading up to that, and we'd gone to some cash in the strategy in that. But really, it gave us a wonderful opportunity during the GFC... To really, really take advantage mm. of the of, of the situation, and we had some firepower to put to work in early two thousand and, and 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 nine. So you know, the first lesson is capital preservation really matters. Mm. Um, at, at, at the end, it was a core of our philosophy, and we added some elements as we saw how things correlated to what we'd have to do additionally in our sort of risk management framework inside the, inside the strategy. And the other one was about being in business. We had $100 million of capital at the time when the GFC hit. It, we weren't making any money. Mm. And, and it wasn't pretty in terms of the business point of view, but the fortress balance sheet we had meant we could go through that period without a lot of concern. You know, our share price got down to 34 cents. And there were three buyers at thirty four cents or thirty six cents. I, I subsequently found out one was myself. I guess I had, I had no choice but to buy. And the other two people I found who bought were my mother and my mother in law. Um, so <laughs> the faithful. <laughs> so, so, so so maybe the, the the ultimate sort of faithful people there. But we were never worried about going out of business. And and you know we, we have a very very strong balance sheet at uh, at Magellan. We have an aversion to have any debt. And I I, I don't think leverage is you know I, I have an aversion personally mm. to, to to leverage and there were some real lessons of people who got taken out had they not had leverage it all would have been fine in the end but but leverage just takes you out of the game at the wrong mm. time and so that would be another lesson
0: mm. you've you've touched on the investment process a little bit there why don't you give us the, the thirty thousand foot view if you like what are you looking for when you when you search out these long term opportunities these macro these thematics these these opportunities that you're seeking for the fund what is it primarily that you're looking for and then maybe you can distill the universe down into more manageable process and list that you that you work from
1: Well, you've asked to start at a high level, so let's start at a very (laughs) uh, high level. Before we get in the macro and why the macro comes into the process, the very first thing we're wanting to do is to to invest in a concentrated portfolio, let's call it 25 names, Mm -hmm. I call it a football team, (laughs) of the world's best businesses. So, so we want to invest in businesses that earn high returns on capital, high returns on incremental capital, and have very durable and long-term sustainable competitive advantages, or what Buffett would refer to as an economic uh, uh, moat to them. So, we, we have a number of different sector teams how we organise our our, okay. our our research. We've got a global franchises uh, team. You could think of a Nestle or a Coca Cola or a Yum Brands or a Starbucks. Um, uh, fitting in, in into that world. Uh, we have a global financial services team. You could think of the big banks of the world fitting in that. You could think of the card payment networks fitting into mm-hmm. that. You could think of stock exchanges and rating agencies and like businesses uh, uh, fitting into that world. We've, of course, got a technology, media and communications uh, team. People may have noticed we've made some mm-hmm. technology investments over the last five years. We've got a very, very specialist uh, team, but it goes across a whole series of things from semiconductors to enterprise software, some hardware, some advertising uh, uh, platforms would uh, we, sit under that space, communications infrastructure uh, would sit after that, some media, very selective media sort of organisations. Most of that's unattractive to us. Mm-hmm. We'd fit our, and of course, we've got our large infrastructure. Um, capability and and business that Gerald Stack has done a terrific job in that and really what we do is we identify from that universe is really what are the best businesses Uh, and then our job is to have our analysts value those businesses and out of that we will select a concentrated portfolio at the best prices uh, we can So, so the core is a concentrated portfolio of just truly outstanding businesses uh, in the world with high returns on capital. And it's very important why we're there, because if you believe in the magic of compound interest, um, you want to compound with two things. One, you want to have some growth behind you, and we'll come on to macro. And the second thing is you want to have high returns on on capital. And they only really exist in these really outstanding uh, uh, companies. And you want that to endure for long periods Mm. of time. If you think of how the magic of compound interest um, uh, works and we're in a very unique a truly unique universe where um, uh, uh, we're, we're shopping in and you can only get excess returns in that because most of the world knows these companies are good businesses. The only way you can get excess returns in that space is in by concentration mm. uh, of having a very focused uh, uh, portfolio. You asked a question on macro. Mm. There's two elements on macro that, that that then get fed into our process. One is something I call macro event risk management. So is are there some very profound things going on in the world that could cause a major market correction or something mm-hmm. to, to, to happen? And we've done a number of things over the years. Uh, before the financial crisis, we were warning people there was a very material risk that a major hedge fund or investment bank would go down with a prime brokerage. Uh, run, and that's what happened mm. with, with, with Bear Stearns. Uh, you know, we were very early out of the gates. What was going on in the European sovereign uh, uh, debt crisis? You know, we've been navigating around the tightening of monetary policy uh, in the world, sometimes very successfully, and sometimes too early on, on 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 that topic. So that that's really sort of risk management, and then we use our sort of cash to to move around some of those events to change the risk ratios we use in the. In the portfolio, and the second part of which you're kind of almost asking a thematic mm. uh, 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 question is that um, is is growth at, at the end of the day and and you really want to be investing where the winds are blowing. Uh, you know if you can find businesses, particularly in the world we're in and we could talk about interest rates, it's a very interesting question. Mm. But if you can find businesses that have high returns on capital and could grow at least, four percent a year for the next 20 years they are incredibly valuable compounding machines if you could find them growing at six percent a year hold on to your chairs if it lasted for 20 years um you know we've owned yum brands that it's been growing at sort of 10 percent per annum and we've owned it for 12 years now and we've made over seven times our money in, in 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 young brands, it's slightly more than that. If you take the spin out of young China, Visa and Mastercard, we haven't been in quite as long. Uh, again, we're we're up at around seven times our money on on on, on Visa, and they've been growing at sort of twelve percent a, a year. So we're really trying to do then find the sort of um, the long-term structural growth stories. We've been very big on payments, as uh, mm. as you know, in the in, in the world. So we spend a lot of time thinking about really where are those next areas of structural growth in the world and where are the businesses that have deep competitive advantages in that in that space and the game's got even more interesting with what's happening in interest
0: rates mm. and that is a perfect segue into the next point which is you, you mentioned briefly there the the process when it comes to valuation and i've and i've read before that some of the discounted cash flow analysis the dcfs that you do uh, often the the length of these these forecasts are, are quite, well, I'm going to say they're a lot longer than I've seen before done in practice. Mm-hmm. And then that obviously brings in interest rate risk and how you think about that in terms of your valuations and your modelling. So perhaps you can guide us through your valuation process or what your analysts would do, and then where you think or how you think that impacts uh, valuations more broadly, but also for you here at Magellan.
1: Yeah, well, we've obviously got a, a large analytical team. We've got about 30 Analysts at, at Magellan, and they don't cover a lot of stocks. An analyst may cover five to eight stocks only mm. in, in what they do, and they build very, very detailed uh, financial models. And it's all done under a very consistent framework and 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 modelling that, that 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 we do. And the analysts do all their own earnings projections. We obviously do a lot of sensitivity anal- uh, analysis um uh on that in terms of the valuation but the the interest rate is and i i must admit i don't personally need i look at the value and i go through all the assumptions Mm -hmm. but for a very very good business i can pretty much calculate the dcf in my head yeah um um, i don't I, i don't need a very detailed financial model if i understand the economics and what, on average, the growth pro- profile of that business. That's a really hard thing. Trying to predict what the coupons are going to be from an equity bond, mm-hmm. um, that's the hardest thing. And they're actually more predictable in really high-quality businesses than they're in low-quality um, uh, businesses. And, and when, when this topic on interest rates, and, and the reason why I could predict something in my, in my head because I understand the mathematical uh, sure. uh, relationship. So let, let's say we have a business and we have the old world The old world where risk-free rates were 5% per annum, Mm -hmm. you add the market risk premium of 5%, and let's say the discount rate you're going to use is about 10% uh, uh, per annum, that that if you had a business that could grow in perpetuity at 4% per annum, that business would be worth a multiple of its free cash flow on a DCF basis of effectively 16.7 times its Mm -hmm. free cash flow. Um, And, you know, if it was at a... 5% growth rate in perpetuity, it would be worth 20 times uh, uh, free cash flow um, um, uh, uh, there. But now let's say that interest rates change, okay? So we're still at a business, exactly the same business, something we've predicted. And and let's say we thought Coca-Cola for the next 20 years could grow at 4% per annum, Mm -hmm. okay? And that's the judgment call we make in understanding... Uh, the business and the free cash flow gets closer to its profit after tax, the higher return on incremental capital is mm-hmm. because it needs less capital to grow. And that's why we like those businesses because a starting point of free cash flow is, is higher. So let's, let's now say that long-term risk-free rates are 4%, not 5%, that exactly the same business, instead of being worth 16.6 times free cash flow, would now be worth 20 times free cash flow and if risk-free rates um, are going to be three percent suddenly that multiple comes 25 times and if risk-free rates are two percent that same multiple is going to be 30 times Mm. so depending on the on the interest rate environment you're in we could value exactly the same business between 16.6 and 30 times free cash flow and so that's a very very important issue and a judgment call for us to be um, uh, to be making. I can tell you, if rates are going back to five percent, these markets are overvalued, and if they're headed towards two to three percent, these markets are still um, uh, undervalued. And it's a very interesting issue that that if you can find businesses that can grow in as rates come down, and a business could maybe grow at five or six percent you start approaching something called the Petersburg paradox, where when the, when the perpetual growth rate starts approaching the discount rate, you start mathematically heading, heading towards infinity mm. in terms of valuation of these, these businesses. So from a macro point of view, we're trying to do things, we're trying to understand what interest rate world we're going in and we think it's structurally lower than it was in the past. And then we're trying to find long term structural growth. If we can find long term structural growth for the next 20 years of 6% a year, it is ridiculously valuable in this world of interest rates are, uh, are coming down. And so that's how we kind of feed the macro. Yeah. Our analysts are there to try and predict the coupons. Yep. The macro side is trying to value what those coupons are worth, mm-hmm. um, ultimately, either to help find areas of demographics or something else that could drive a structural growth uh, uh, story and therefore look at the hunting ground, but also the interest rate side is a very, very profound and deep macroeconomic equation that no-one knows the answer
0: to, mm-hmm. by the way, and, we, we, of course, we run ranges mm-hmm. uh, uh, around that. for Sure. So you don't use, say, a standard discount rate across all companies that you value it's i suppose it's determined in part by the, the strength of the franchise
1: well we're, we're using a classic CAPM type yep. to, type equation you know we will use a standard risk-free rate yep. that we're making assumption but you know you've got risk-free rates of negative mm. in europe and japan at the moment and you're at less than two percent in the uh, in the United States, we are not using those hmm. risk-free rates in our valuation models, but nor are we using five percent anymore. Hmm. Uh, so let's say we're running somewhere between two and five. I don't want to say exactly what yep. we're running, and we run a uh, we 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 run a range there. So we standardize that, and we standardize the when you have to fade down to your cost of capital and things. So there's standard models right. um, um, that 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 get that get run, but it's then up to the analysts
0: to determine what the free cash flow is going to be. One thing I like about the way you invest is your ability or your willingness to concentrate and have conviction in your positions. I I believe that the fewer decisions we can make tend to lead to higher quality decisions. And one thing that I often see fund managers get wrong is the the, the sell decision, when to sell. It's almost harder, I would say, than the buy decision. How do you think about that? What are the the indicators you use to, say, monitor the, the economic moat, if you like, of a business? and Or is it a pure, pure valuation decision?
1: Well, it's very clear in my mind what the sell discipline is here mm-hmm. at, uh, here at Magellan. The most often reason we sell is something I call the measurement of the opportunity cost. Mm-hmm. You started out by saying part of what we do is actually have a concentrated portfolio. Sure. I tell our team what we're trying to do is we're trying to build the world's best sporting team. I actually have two different sets of players. So I invest in a very, very defensive portfolio, things that will be very resilient if the is ec- turned down and then a probably more cyclical growth portfolio. So let's say I've got an offensive team and mm-hmm. a defensive team. And I say I've only got 25 slots. <laughs> so I have to keep optimising. And when the analysts come up or our research comes up and finds me a great new growth business or something, and I'm going, well, that, I'd love to buy it. And I go, well, the team's full. Hmm. So most of the time, to buy that, I'll have to kick something out. Mm -hmm. And the very interesting thing of the analogy to a a sporting team is unlike a coach who's trying to win a Super Bowl or something, is we have no salary cap, we can put the very best players on the paddock, and we aren't the one who has to just buy the whole lot. We can buy a fractional Mm -hmm. interest in the very best players, and we can trade them with almost no cost. So the number one reason we're selling something is we've found a better player to put in our team and we force it out. That team, that that, that may have no structural problems in the long term, it's just its risk-reward equation is less than the one we've, we've, we've found, and that's most of the reason we sell. The second reason we sell is just on an absolute valuation mm-hmm. equation. Let's say we haven't kicked the player out, but we've held it for a long time, it now gets to a price... On our central estimates, we just do not think we're going to get an acceptable rate of return on that. So absolute valuation would be the second one. And the third one, unfortunately, does happen. It's when we make mistakes. And uh, it's inevitable in this business that Mm. you're going to make investment mistakes. You have to deal with those mistakes. You know, wishing for your money back is not a good way of doing it. Doubling down and catching a falling sword is not a good way to deal with a, a mistake. I think we tend to be very brutal when we make a uh, a mistake, we tend to take ownership of it very quickly. we tend to be very public, internally and externally admitting what our mistakes. and then we tend to deal with it and you know outside the Tesco situation which I, which I held and then sold uh, and back to turnaround and as Buffett says, turn around, seldom turn. Um, and maybe mm. we got lucky in the end. It was a pretty average decision. It worked out okay. I probably got about 7% per annum mm. out of a Tesco hold decision.
0: Um, but most times when we make a mistake, we, 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 we deal with it and we sell it. Mm. I think you mentioned Tesco in the 2018 annual letter that you wrote. And you, you were very candid with your, your mistakes that yourself or the team have made. How about when it comes to risk management? You've talked about selling selling these businesses, but... Do you implement any type of strategy? You've mentioned you've got your, your defenders, if you like, and your attackers, your, your growth and your defensive. Do you implement any other type of, I don't know, portfolio management overlay? Is there a particular st- structure you use when it comes to building out the portfolio and thinking about it from like a low beta point of view or something like that?
1: Yeah, we, 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 we do a series of things. You know, capital preservation. We, we, we've gone out there on a limb and saying we want our strategy to have materially less drawdown risk mm. when markets go down. Um, And that's a very, very important element of uh, of that. And if you're going to say that you need to have some elements in your portfolio construction, your risk management, we're not out there shorting strategies and taking complex derivatives trying to take out downside Mm. uh, uh, risk. We do a whole series of steps. First of all, we're investing in a very, very high quality portfolio of businesses. And half of that's going to be in cash or very defensive businesses that tend to do very well if the economy turns around. So structurally, half of our portfolios in that area are very high quality. Of course, we then do valuations. We want to buy these when we think they're attractively priced, where there's some margin of safety involved. Then we've got something that we have, which is called the combined risk ratio. And that's an analysis of both the volatility of the stock relative to the market and its drawdown, the stock's performance during 15 drawdown periods historically. Uh, we measure of how the stocks have actually performed in the past when you get a shock in the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the market. And we set that combined risk ratio at 0.8. So effectively, we would say that our portfolio at its cap has risk characteristics of about 80% mm. of the risk of the market uh, there. And then, we, then we, as we build a portfolio, we think about correlations and aggregation risk. Um, and so we 've got a whole series of total single stock limits uh, sector limits, where they correlate uh, together in the portfolio, then to make sure that we 're not overly exposed in one particular uh, uh,
0: direction mm. you know, I've, it's the proof is in the pudding at least historically from what you 've what you 've produced here at Magellan top quartile returns in the top quartile i guess for that risk management process that you go through. and I'd be very disappointed if we were top quartile. Oh, sorry. I mean, bottom (laughs) quartile, but top quartile performance. (laughs) (laughs) So, as we... I like being a top (laughs) percentile rather than top quartile, but... (laughs) (laughs) Maybe, uh, yeah. Well, we'll, I I mean, needless to say, it's been very impressive to date. And um, that brings me to my next next point, which is you've grown Magellan into a fantastic business. It's clearly one of the, the behemoths of Australian funds management. Can you... Can you keep investing the way that you do, if you keep growing the way that you are?
1: Well, if, if you think about our global equity strategy, we, we have at the end of 2017, effectively closed it to new institutional uh, clients. So we, right. we, we, we have about 60 billion Australian in funds under management in the global equity strategy. And outside our sort of retail business, um, which effectively almost offsets any sort of natural attrition we get on the other side of the uh, the book. For all intents and purposes, we've 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 closed that. We've closed okay. the global equities outside the retail business in Australia. Our our infrastructure business is not is not closed, but it will close uh, as well. Does does that stop the business growing from a Magellan point of view? Um, no, what we would say is if we can continue to generate very acceptable investment returns, uh, and let's say on average between infrastructure and global net of all fees, we can deliver 8 or 9% uh, uh, per annum mm-hmm. um, in that strategy. That means every eight to nine years, we would be doubling funds under management, yet not taking mm. any new clients on, on board. And if we can grow our revenues at 8 to 9% per annum, and I talked about the Petersburg mm-hmm. paradox here, and we have a free cash flow yield, which is our dividend yield, uh, of around 4%, you know, that's around 12% per annum. We don't do anything else in our, our business. Am I concerned with the amount of money of $60 billion that we can't generate alpha with $60 billion um I, I'm finding no issues with that at the moment in terms of what we're doing within our universe. And frankly, what will happen is all these companies we invest in, the whole, it just inflates. Mm. So our universe effectively stays static with, with markets growing and the profits of these companies growing, um, uh, growing over time. And then from a Magellan perspective, we're, there's incremental things. We're, we're probably going to announce a retirement uh, product at the end of this year uh, hopefully obviously working through some pretty complex issues sure. and it's been going on uh, for a few years we've got our sustainable strategies um, uh, out there and you know if we we and infrastructure is not closed at the moment if we can earn if we can own a point or two of, of funds under management, uh, uh growth you know one percent of funds under management is 800 billion dollars but you know if we could if we can grow it a few extra percent a year a few billion dollars a year of new funds under management you add that to 12 percent you're up near 14 percent hmm. total return so no from a magellan point of view I'm not concerned and from the strategy point of view of effectively when we closed the the core global strategy to institutional investors um, I'm, I'm, I'm 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 very relaxed around. Hmm. Uh, around those numbers. Mm. But, I, but we, wouldn't, we couldn't have taken in $100 billion of funds under management in that global right. equity. Strategy. Okay. So there absolutely is a cap that you have to think about in terms of
0: liquidity um, in order to generate alpha in what you do. Mm. Um, well, I, I guess a lot of the names in the portfolio, particularly when you concentrate, are quite large. You know, the visas you've mentioned. Uh, well, we're,
1: we're, we only have one substantial shareholding Right. in 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 that and that is young brands. So right. young brands is the only company where we where we own just over five percent of the right. uh, of, of the company. So compared to most fund managers you look at, mm. and you know I think the next biggest ones are we've got HCAs around four uh, percent. Most companies we invest in, we don't have anywhere like near one percent of mm. the issue capital. Mm. Uh, we, we're we're fishing in a very
0: very large pond. Yeah, plenty to go. Okay. Well, one of the things that you're known for, Hamish, is your ability to think what's going to happen next in the global world of technology. What's, what's, how is that landscape changing and what should we expect? So I think it'd be remiss of me not to ask you, what are you most excited about as you look forward from now in terms of the technology landscape?
1: Well, I think we have to distinguish between what I'm excited about as a as a human being of what 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 can happen and what can happen for my kids and grandkids, um, and what even may happen in our lifetimes in sort of healthcare and 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 other matters. To what's probably nearer in the investment mm. um, uh, universe, and the investment universe is both things that are very positive, creating the tailwinds where we may be investing, and things that could be deeply disruptive to other areas we may. May, uh, may invest in. Still, if we have a look, what's going on in that in that advertising space? There's still huge unmet uh, markets, obviously with a lot of regulatory risk at the mm. uh, at the moment. Uh, cloud computing is something that I think is 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 in its very very early stages, and the size of the addressable markets are probably in the trillion dollar. Uh, sort of level and there's some very very large players who are going to effectively own the world's computing infrastructure and there's probably only be four players maybe a player out of china and maybe three big players in the uh, in the in in the west and we're very very early on in that in that in that side of things and that's growing at around 50 percent a year at the at, uh, at the moment, it's obviously going to slow down. There's laws of large, large numbers, but we're very very early on in the penetration. And even when it ultimately ends taking market share from sort of on-premise infrastructure, um, that 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 could continue growing in line with. Uh, world GDP, mm. um, which is a very, very rare commodity uh, uh, ultimately. So that's something that there, – there's other areas that that I'd say we're early stages but could be absolutely breakthroughs in the next 10 years. Quantum computing would be uh, an area that I think will be a game changer in how terms
0: you, of – Can I ask you how so? How do you think that – that concept is totally unfamiliar to me, so – Quantum computing. Can well, well, well quantum
1: it? computing is is, is is effectively using quantum mechanics in, in a so the moment computers are all on off switches um, on a silicon uh, semiconductor in, in infrastructure, where, where where quantum computing is effectively where the on off switches exist in the same state simultaneously. The laws of quantum me- uh, uh, mechanics, which means the computations that, that a computer can do are orders and orders of magnitude beyond what any form of solid state um, semiconductors uh, uh, could do. And with that, we could model out um, any molecule in the world and understand how, how, how it operates. We could really get into uh, uh, genome sequencing and really start to understand the human genome in cryptography. You could break any cryptography in the world. It's quite frightening for which company <laughs> would, would, would get, which country could get there. The first of, of what you could think about writing in sort of computer programming um, and understanding how the complexities of the world work and break through new medicines and things that we, that we the mind can't even think about at the moment. Uh, and I think we're probably maybe 10 years away from having a functional... We've got sort of non-functional mm-hmm. uh, quantum computers out of labs at the moment, but a functional quantum computer of, 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 and then accelerating of our understanding of the universe and our understanding of molecules and medicine and mathematics um, here, purely what computers don't have the grunt. Uh, uh, to do um, uh, to do at the moment mm. so and there are a number of companies who have got very very deep research you know I would say the leader is probably Google at the moment in terms of private enterprise IBM's got large labs Microsoft's got large uh, uh, labs uh, we've got large university labs in Australia University of New South Wales and University of Sydney and universities around the, the world so there's massive research going into this. Mm. Um, uh, into this area but it's not just technology the reason we, we, we're we're not just investing in technology because it's technology mm. it's because of the business models that have been created and the structural growth is as they start disrupting industries and taking massive market share and it also starts getting us thinking about areas which we may want to avoid i'm i'm pretty um sanguine about investing in banks Okay. Um, you know, I think we're at the front end of their business models being uh, 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 disrupted. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, we've seen what Facebook mm. announced the other day with with Libra, but you're going to get huge amounts of financial disruption in in the in the in the banking system if we look out a, a decade. If you look at the power of what Amazon's doing in the world and what Facebook's doing in the world, the ability of new brands to come up and get distributed and completely. New ways, traditional brands start getting uh, uh, disrupted in the world. So we we think on opportunity and risks on mm-hmm. uh, on the side of what technology can
0: uh, can enable. Mm. It sounds like that um, the quantum computing might be the the personal excitement, still being ten years away. But um, it's kind of like the, the optionality of owning Alphabet shares, for example. Well, you could have the
1: optionality of owning um, Alphabet or or. Uh, or Microsoft, for instance, but, but closer to home is, is there's three big players in the world who own the cloud computing infrastructure mm. of the world. One is Amazon Web Services, and we don't own Amazon, uh, but we own large positions in Microsoft and Alphabet. Um, Microsoft owns the Azure platform, mm-hmm. and, and the Google Cloud platform is obviously owned by Uh, alphabet. I would say that's near a term in terms of what's going to be very material in their profitability in the next 10 years. I don't think quantum computing is going to be material to any of these companies. And it's very hard to predict who will have the winning quantum computing Mm. um, sort of infrastructure uh, in the world. But I'm saying for humanity, breaking that equation and what it opens
0: up is is profound. Mm. Okay. Well, it's something to look forward uh, to with excitement, I guess. You've mentioned the big US names here. For Australian investors sitting at home or in the car listening to this, and they're they're thinking, I don't invest abroad, I don't have that exposure, I would imagine that you would say that the home country buyers, if you like, they're going to miss out over the next decade or or longer.
1: Look, I I don't want to overly talk our own book. Obviously, I've got a slight conflict of interest, but I I think the simple simple math of this, you know, the Australian market represents less than 2% of the world's market. Mm. capitalisation. And therefore, if you've got 70% of your money in Australian equities, but it's only 2% of the opportunity that's available there in the world, you tend to have a home market bias. And people typically get home market biases wherever they are. It's a, it's extreme in the case of, of Australia. Mm. Obviously, there can be benefits with our taxation system of the franking credits you get out. So there are the franking credit equation that you get out. You For don't sure. get double taxation on, on ownership of Australian equities, where if you own some equities in France or the UK or, or or the United States, you would on the dividends maybe get not on the capital gains, but on the dividends is yep. an element of double taxation uh, 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 there. But if you really think about what's going on in the world and you want to invest in areas of structural growth, where are the areas, the banking system of just cities, I'm not interested mm. in, in the bank, the retailers, most of the retailers, there's probably only Traditional retailers, there may be only four structurally advantaged retailers left in the world, could and they name, ain't in
0: Australia. Could, could you name some of them? Or?
1: Oh, I, I would say Costco has a, has mm-hmm. a structurally advantaged um, uh, retailing model. Maybe Intertex, who owns the Zara mm-hmm. business, maybe have a structurally advantaged retailing um, um, uh, business. Walmart, I think the jury's out whether they have the capability to effectively take on Amazon mm. or, or, or not in the world. A lot of the traditional retail models are structurally really challenged about the, what Amazon's doing uh, to the world and the physical nature of the, of the real estate burdens that they, uh, uh, that they have, whole paradigms are being shifted. So then you say retailing's not that, 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 that mm. attractive. We have a large commodity sector. In, in 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 Australia, um, I'm not huge fans of commodities, but but that's it. But but where are the payments franchises? Mm. Where are the cloud computing um, um, businesses in Australia? Where um, where where are the access to the non-commodity side of China? I guess we've got A2 milk or or, or something. But but where are the luxury companies mm. that you could participate? What is going on at the, at the upper middle class and the prestige side of the Chinese market is growing at 30% a year at the moment. And it's by far and away the large, one of the large structural plays that's happening in the world. We obviously own Starbucks and we may own some other things now that, that, that's playing to that. It's just it, when you look what's going on in the world at the moment, there are very, very few players in Australia that are listed that you can participate in that and they're kind of playing out in the old economy Mm. and much of this old economy is being hollowed out.
0: Mm. Um, um, Yeah, I've heard you say that before.
1: Yeah, I I think I've said before that the the centre of the market risks being hollowed out Mm. and and, and I think it's true. I, I, I really think the disruption that's coming is hollowing out those traditional businesses in many stock markets in mm. the, in the world and i think as australia really uh, really looks like that mm. uh, uh, to to me but there are some good companies here as well so, sure. so i don't want to say there sure. aren't good companies it's just the game's got harder and there's fewer choices here and the game's got harder mm. for all of us and um, if you're picking your best way,
0: 25 it's just i've got a larger menu to select fr- from as that world starts to get hollowed out for sure uh, there's one final thing one final thematic or <laughs> maybe we can call it a thematic is this this Trump v China or USA v China trade war I know you've sh- shared some thoughts on it before so I'm just uh, interested to get your your latest thoughts on it what how you think that's going to play out and any implications for you uh, here at Magellan?
1: yeah well first of all I would say that that uh, that in the the long-term strategic or geopolitical struggle between China and the United States are not going to get solved at the moment, okay. the only thing that will get solved is whether there's a truce or not in, in that, and that is really a political issue for Trump to decide domestically of what he wants to take into twenty uh, twenty. Does he want to take in the fact that there's a massive fight between China and he's fighting for his base against China, or mm-hmm. does he want to take in the stock market and he's the world's greatest deal doer and has just done the greatest deal in in in, in, in history? And both of them are. are Viable political platforms to take into hmm. uh, into 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 twenty twenty. So, if you think about the short term issue, is you know we could either get in a deeper trade dispute, and Trump decides not to take off that table. That is probably pretty ugly for markets in the hmm. short term because most markets are factoring in that there will be some form of truce. Uh, called in the in the short term, so we think about the short term risk in terms of escalating tariffs or, or or not, and how we'd be exposed to, to to, to that issue. But the very long term issue is I've already talked about that 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 getting China right is incredibly important for for investing over the next ten to twenty to twenty mm. years. But we can't ignore that there's going to be this ongoing. Geopolitical tension between China and the united states it 's not going to go away, so we really have to think about how do we participate in that growth in China without putting too many eggs in an American flag around that. Um, you know we own Starbucks hmm. um, we own apple we 're not buying apple because of its China business, but it 's got its supply chain in in in, in China and twenty percent of its revenue hmm. coming out of greater China. At the moment, when you think about Starbucks, about fifty percent of its profit growth in the next decade is going to be driven out of out of out of China. So it's an important issue. But if we're wanting to participate more in that structural growth of consumption in China, and it's a very very important issue, and we don't think that's going to go away with the trade dispute, mm. um, we we think China is going to continue to grow. We'll have cycles, but it's going to continue to grow, and particularly at that, at that high end, how, how do we um, participate in, in, in that without overly correlating this risk mm. uh, around this ongoing tension between China and the United States?
0: Yeah, OK. Um, as we come to the back end of the conversation, I've got a few more questions for you, but one of them is just to ask you how our listeners can find out more about Magellan and the funds that are on offer. I know there's some listed on the ASX... Is the website the best place to go? Yeah, I think the website is the best best place to go. We feel very, very strongly that we want
1: to provide all the investors with the same information mm-hmm. uh, to make a decision to either invest in Magellan Financial Group or invest in any of our, our funds. So mm-hmm. we, we we put a lot of material on our on our on our, mm, on, on our website, do. both in written, written and video. Form there's lots of fact sheets. There's daily um, uh, prices on all our funds. There's descriptions on that, but also our views on companies and our views on what's going on mm. in markets. We put that on the on the on the website, and we really hope that people find that uh, insightful and useful for 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 making a decision whether they want to uh, invest. Uh, mm. uh, with us, and of course, people can go and speak to financial advisors. You know, most financial Absolutely. advisors uh, would would be well versed in what we
0: in what we do as well. Mm. Great, I'll put all the links in the show notes for those. Second last question: I just want to know, perhaps a selfish one, how your life has changed since you started Magellan? Yeah, to be to be honest with you, my life has
1: changed very little since I've 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 started magellan my kids are a bit older mm-hmm. um i've got four fantastic uh kids we have a farm out of sydney we owned that farm before we um own um owned magellan and right. we, we built a house there i think since we since we've put magellan we we're a bit extravagant we put on two bedrooms so we've renovated <laughs> uh uh we've renovated the, the farm i live in the same house in Sydney I've still got the same car but I bought a second car I have a I have a Ute that I had uh, that's that's on our farm that I use um, but I bought a slightly more comfortable uh, car a Volkswagen um, to drive up and down to probably more appropriate uh, around the city <laughs> yeah, it's a little bit more comfortable that Ute was pretty pretty uncomfortable uh, uh, to uh, <laughs> uh, to drive in so we, we we try and keep it real at um, at home but I love what I do you know mm. Uh, probably what's changed at Magellan is Magellan's changed. Mm. Magellan's got a lot larger and we've got a lot more people and fantastic mm. people here. Magellan, after a decade of one Castle race Street, we moved into the MLC Centre. We got a very good deal on the rent here, by the way. <laughs> okay. um, but we, uh, we've, we've got some nice offices now. They're not over the, t- uh, uh, over the top, so maybe that's changed a little bit, but literally we had people stacked on top of each other mm. down in one car. When you set up a business with 20 people and you end with 100, it gets a little cramped. <laughs> Um, I think we had one or two meeting rooms, so you know it's got a slightly nicer. But really, for my life is, and I think that's that's a really important lesson. I think you, you notice you notice people who start having success, and then they start changing their lifestyle to mold into that, mm. and then the things that made them successful all start to disappear. Mm. You know, their their focuses change, and what they're doing. Uh, uh, changes and yeah, you know, I'm 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 not doing this for the money. I I, I do it for the game. I, I, I love the scoreboard. Mm-hmm. Um, this game is very very humbling. I, I can tell you every time we make a mistake, a lot of competitors and journalists and other things <laughs> pointed out very for sure, uh. Uh, very quickly. I don't mind that. I, I don't mind that. If we make a, a mistake, we deserve to be called out um, mm-hmm. on that. Uh, on that, you you can't reinvent the scoreboard. Um, uh, here and it, it it it's a journey and we're doing it for the long term. You know, mm-hmm. I, I've got no intention of sort of retiring mm-hmm. um, at the uh, at the end. I'd love to do. You know, uh, Warren is 88. He's going to be 89 mm-hmm. next year. Charlie's 95. Um, I'm not sure I'll still be doing it
0: at 95. Mm-hmm. But uh, but I look and say there's a there's a lot of water to go under this bridge for sure. Um, yet, yeah, for sure. Okay, last question, Hamish. It's my favorite. If you could go back and tell a younger you, perhaps even your kids today, one thing about money, finance, or investing, what would it be? I, I think the most important message
1: I'd have to, 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 to anyone is, is, is compound interest mm-hmm. at, the, uh, at the end of the day. And I, I just love the quote from Benjamin Franklin, one of the founding fathers of the United States. Uh, and he said, money makes money, and the money that money makes, makes more money. <laughs> And really, that's the core of what investing is all about, is finding a great investment and having patience and letting that magic work for you over time. Mm-hmm. Um, and just not trading in those chips quickly and 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 that's really what we're about at at magellan. if if people could understand the the mathematical relationships of 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 compounding, um, you know if if you've got a business, if you've got something that could compound, at at ten percent per annum, that means every seven years you're 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 doubling uh, your money and you know over fourteen years you've got four times your money over twenty one years um, uh, you've got eight times your money for twenty eight years you've got sixteen times mm. your money at ten percent per annum and you change those compounding rates a little bit more alpha and the numbers start to explode. Hmm. And, and, and and just understanding it's a game of patience and it's a game of finding where you can, in a low-risk way, compound your money at sensible rates. So it don't have to be at ridiculous rates. It is much more valuable finding something that can compound your money at 15% a year for a decade than something that can make your 50% return in the next 18 months. Hmm. And, and I don't think a lot of people get that, and that's probably... Look, I like math early on, and 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 um, I kind of got mathematical relationships, but if I could tell one people, just look at compounding tables mm. and, and, and understand them, and once you understand uh,
0: that, and then have some patience, um, that would be the biggest lesson. Wonderful, Hamish. Thanks for taking the time out and joining us on the show. A pleasure. Thanks again for tuning in to the Australian Investors Podcast. For further episodes, head to www.raskfinance.com. To provide feedback, nominate a guest, or hear from me, you can find me on Twitter with the handle at Owen Rask. Cheers to our financial futures. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees